you about how you celebrated Christmas. So mm. All right. <laughs> Thanks, Linda. Linda does so many um, wonderful things for our church. She put together that Advent uh, guide and... Um, and then she also has been the one responsible for the postcards. So we're, this is our last Sunday in the sermon series of postcards from the prophets. And Linda made these cool postcards that she's put up every week for the different uh, prophets that we've been studying. And um, I thought I would just show us the one that she came up with for this week for Jonah. We're going to be talking about Jonah um, and uh, so it says, uh, <clears throat> Dear Beloved, the story of Jonah reminds us of the importance of sharing God's message of salvation to all of his creation, which often requires us to get outside our own comfort zone. I will help you tell the story. Lean in, God. Now, I love that, um, but that's a lot of words on a postcard, right? You know, and so I got thinking about it, like, what if God only had very limited space, like five words or less, Okay. Five words or less, what would God say to us about Jonah? And here's what I came up with. Don't be like Jonah. God, okay. All right. Uh, because Jonah is not your typical prophet. There are 17 prophetic books in the Old Testament, and uh, Jonah is really the only one that primarily is about Jonah's story rather than Jonah's words. Okay, so it's unusual in that way, it's not about the prophet's words and what the prophet is saying, but it's about the prophet's life and their story. And some story it is. It's only four chapters in length. And of course, it has the dramatic part that everybody thinks about when you hear Jonah, right? Which is what? The whale, the fish getting swallowed, living, right? That, that whole thing. But um, I got to tell you, as I've been in Jonah and preparing this sermon, getting swallowed by a fish is the, is uh, far from the most surprising and shocking uh, part of Jonah's story, as we're going to see this morning. What's uh, really more unexpected is how Jonah, the chosen prophet of God, how he acts and feels towards God. Okay, so let's jump into the story. Starting in chapter 1, the first couple verses, says this, The Lord's word came to Jonah, Amittai's son, Get up and go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their evil has come to my attention. Now, for us to kind of understand what's going on here, we've got to do a little bit of background on Nineveh. So Nineveh is a city that nowadays uh, you know, it would be located somewhere in northern Iraq. And at the time, Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Okay? Now... Um, to understand the Assyrian Empire, they really were kind of a, a, a nation or power that was trying to become a superpower, right? And the way they were going about that is they were one by one sort of trying to conquer the smaller nations uh, surrounding it. Um, it's sort of comparable to a little bit of sort of like Russia has been doing. Like if you're a, 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 in one of the Baltic states, right, you sort of look at Russia and you're like, man, they're coming for us, right? Uh, that's, that's basically how Assyria was, was functioning. And Israel was one of those smaller nations. Um, and they were, you know, you could imagine being an Israelite at that time, you were living under sort of the constant threat of invasion. Okay, So that's Nineveh, the capital city of this, this empire. Now, um, beyond that, Assyria was known for some, not some great practices. I mean, they, as they conquered nations, they would take people and enslave them. 
um, to sort of further their, their ends. And they were known for being extremely violent and ruthless. I won't go into the gory details, but it's enough to kind of turn your stomach, the kind of practices that they uh, were known for. So really, Assyria is like uh, the bully, and Israel is the smaller, weaker kid getting shaken down for his lunch money. Okay, that's, that's the, the scene here that's set. Now we learn two things from these first two verses. Number one, that God is aware of the evil things being done by Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire, and um, God's not okay with it. Okay? He's aware he's not okay with it. And the second thing is that God's plan is to send Jonah to Nineveh to call them out on their wickedness. Okay? Now, in one sense, this isn't unusual. Throughout Scripture, God reveals himself as a God who cares deeply about how people treat one another. Okay? And he's particularly concerned, you see this theme throughout all of the Scripture, He's particularly concerned with how those with power treat those who have less power. Okay? So he's always going on and on about how folks get treated, especially those who have less power and how they're treated by the powerful. And so for the nation of Israel, whenever they kind of lost their way and they were starting to promote injustice and oppression um, amongst their people, God would often send prophets to Israel to call them out on their bad behavior. Stop doing that. Because God has strong feelings about injustice and oppression. He is not okay with it. And over and over again, he would speak to those things and say, this is wrong, you need to repent. So what is unusual, though, in this situation, is that God is sending a Jewish prophet to a Gentile nation to call them out on their bad behavior. Now, this is, this is pretty unusual. What's even more unusual is how Jonah responds to God's word to him. So let's just look at the next verse. Now, don't worry. We're not going to go through Jonah verse by verse, okay? We're going to skip ahead in just a minute. But here's what the next verse says. So God gives this word, go to Nineveh. So Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship headed for Tarshish. He paid the fare and went aboard to go with them to Tarshish away from the Lord. So instead of obeying God's instructions, which if you think about it, that's really the only thing that a prophet's job is, right? God says, here's the word, and you got to go give it, and that's kind of what you're, that's like your whole role, your whole purpose, right? But instead of doing that, Jonah runs as fast as he can in the opposite direction. We'll take a look at a map here just to sort of paint the picture, okay? So he's supposed to go to Nineveh from Joppa. But instead, he says, I'm going to Tarshish. It's literally the farthest city in the opposite direction in their known world. Okay, that's where I'm going. All right, which begs the question, why does Jonah run? Why does he run from God? Now, we actually don't find the answer, find out the answer to that question until all the way in the final chapter, in chapter but a few things happen along the way, so let me kind of fill us in on the story or remind us of the story. So Jonah hops on this boat, sailing to Tarshish. A storm hits. It's a rager, and uh, the ship is going to sink. And Jonah realizes that God has sent the storm because of his disobedience. And he convinces the sailors, like, if you want to live, you've got to throw me overboard. Um, that's the only way that uh, the storm is going to be calm. And the sailors, who are not God followers, uh, you know, they recognize, hey, you're a prophet of God. That, God's probably not going to be okay with us, you know, drowning you. So we're not, and, the, and Jonah's like, no, you need to do it. So finally they say, God, forgive us. They throw Jonah overboard. 
um, thinking that Jonah's going to die. But God has mercy on Jonah. And he sends the fish or the whale or what, you know, some giant sea creature that swallows Jonah. And Jonah lives in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And somewhere in the midst of his sort of new accommodations, Jonah has a chance to reflect on maybe I haven't made the best choices, right? And so he prays, he kind of says this prayer. It's sort of a repentant prayer um, and um, kind of acknowledge God, you're God. I should probably do what you say. And so uh, the fish, after three days, vomits Jonah up on dry land. And then God speaks to Jonah again. Go to Nineveh and cry out to them. And so this time Jonah obeys. And he goes to Nineveh. And he barely just, he sort of walks in. He starts this little short little sermon about kind of um, God, you know, you're, you're going to be overthrown. Nineveh is going to be overthrown. Um, and that's it. He just sort of says it. And he's like, I'm, I'm done. I sort of did what God told me to do, right? Well, the king hears it. And the king um, recognizes this is from God. And so the king takes off his robes and he puts on sackcloth and he sits down in the dust as a sign of repentance, and he sends out an edict to the whole city and saying, everyone must fast and stop eating, and not just all the people, like we're going to make all the animals fast as well, we're not going to feed them, and uh, we need to repent of our evil ways, of our violence and our wrongdoing, and he calls the whole city to repent, and God sees this, and he receives their repentance, and he withdraws the calamity that he was going to bring upon them. And extends mercy to them. Now here's where the story takes an unexpected turn. Now we're in chapter 4. And this was what it says. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. We see here that Jonah is angry with God, that God is merciful to his enemies. This is why Jonah ran back, ran away from God in chapter 1, and this is why he is angry with God now in chapter 4. It was like the moment that God told him to go to Nineveh. Jonah hears that word Nineveh, and he is triggered, right? He's like, Nineveh, I want nothing to do with them. They are the enemy. They deserve judgment, not mercy. And I know you, God. I know that if they repent, you are going to show mercy to them. And he, Jonah is so utterly convinced that he is in the right, that Nineveh deserves judgment, that he would rather die than see the Ninevites experience God's mercy. Apparently, three days spent in the belly of a fish has not really changed Jonah's outlook on the situation. He's angry with God. God, this is wrong. So God tries to get through to Jonah again. Okay? All right, the fish didn't work. Let's try it again. And this is what the Lord says to him. It says, but the Lord replied, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? See, I think this one question is really the whole point of the book of Jonah. 
Jonah, is it right that you who have received mercy multiple times in this story, right? You ran from me, right? I saved your life. I gave you a chance to fulfill the word that I had given to you originally. And even now, as you're like being spiteful towards me and telling me that I'm wrong, I'm still engaging with you. Jonah, I have shown you mercy. Would you deny me the right to show mercy to others? That's the question that God is asking Jonah. Is it right for you to be angry? Can't I show mercy to who I want to show mercy to? And I think it's the question that God is still asking his people today. Now go with me here. I don't think it's a stretch to say that in our culture, in our day and age today, here in the United States, that there is an abundance of anger and division and enmity. All you got to do is go on social media, watch the news, right? Um, Nineveh may have been the word that triggered Jonah, but these days, really just a few letters can trigger all sorts of strong feelings. Let me just give some examples. M-A-G-A, MAGA, right? Make America Great Again, President Trump's uh, slogan. BLM, Black Lives Matter. DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, the policy related to Um, immigration and undocumented youth. NRA, the National Rifle Association. These letters have been present um, all over the place in the last few years. And all it takes is one post on Facebook, one tweet, one news story containing any of these letters, and all kinds of anger comes spewing out from different perspectives. Now, I just want to be clear. I'm not trying to be political this morning. I am just trying to paint the picture of what our world is like right now, okay? Because letters like this, when those go up, lines are drawn. And those that are not on your side of the line, whichever side you're on, that's who you tribe up with. And anyone who's not on your side of the line or in your tribe, they have become the enemy. That's what our culture um, is promoting. And as Christians, we're not really immune to this dynamic, are we? We can get caught up in it as well. A few years ago, uh, in the organization that I work for, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, we do campus ministry on college campuses, right? Uh, these are folks who are, have dedicated their lives to like promoting the gospel amongst college students and discipling them and helping them to follow Jesus. Well, a decision was made at the national level that about a policy um, change that uh, was rather controversial. I won't get into all the details of that. Suffice it to say, there were folks who had strong opinions on both sides of the issue. And the way that folks tried to come together to sort of work out their differences and try to understand each other was by posting things on Facebook. Well, you can see where I'm going about how that went, right? People are scattered all over the country. It's, we can't sort of gather in the same space. So folks are like, okay, let's, I'm going to start sharing my opinion on Facebook about this. And one opinion would go up on one side, and then a response would come on the other side, and then a response that would come on the other side, and it was just boom, 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 boom. And over time, the posts began to get angrier and angrier. 
And that medium of social media fueled a spirit of judgment within our organization. It began to distort how people saw one another. It got ugly and toxic and painful. National leadership did their best to try to clean up the mess, but it's been three years since that happened. I was just at a gathering of some national leaders were present, and it was clear to me that the wounds from that episode are still present. Is it right for you to be angry? Now, this question that God asked, I don't think it means that anger is never appropriate. Um, Anger can actually lead to better communication. Sometimes we have to get kind of stirred up enough that we actually say what we really think and get our real uh, feelings and, and thoughts out there. And, you know, depending on the family you grew up in, in my family, anger was not really a regular thing. And it was, you know, and when it did happen, it was like, ah, you know, that's bad, right? Uh, but other families, like, anger is just like, yeah, that's like a, you know, like people yelling at one another. That's just good communication, right? Okay. So, you know, it, anger can lead to better communication. Anger can also be a catalyst for needed change. Can be the thing that that actually sparks folks out of their initia, and we got to move this thing. We got to change it. Jesus Himself got angry at the injustices in the temple. Right? He looked at it and said, "This is not right. This is not God's intention. You're keeping people from worshiping God in the way that He intended because of your desire, the system you put up to sort of make money." Right? So Jesus got angry, flipping tables over and all that, letting folks know this is not okay. So when God asks this question, is it right for you to be angry? It's not saying anger is never appropriate. I think it's actually just meant to be a warning about how anger, particularly I think when it's linked to a deeper fear, a fear of livelihood, of your thriving, of change that will make you feel uncomfortable, of somebody messing with your world. I think Jonah is angry because the, at the end of the day, he's afraid if Nineveh is still around, they're, they're going to mess with my world. Right? And so when anger combined with fear, I think it often leads to a self-righteous anger. A self-righteousness that can blind us. Right? A self-righteousness that says, I know I am right and you are wrong. And it's a, a self-righteousness that can blind us to the reality that we are all recipients of God's mercy. We all have benefited from God's mercy. And that the followers of Jesus, more than anyone, should understand that we are citizens of a different kingdom. Citizens of a different kingdom. My brothers and sisters, we are destined to live in a kingdom characterized by grace. That is what we were made for. And in that kingdom of grace, God's mercy is the coin of the realm. It's a kingdom that was ushered in with the ultimate display of mercy that took place when our king went on a cross. That's the kingdom of grace. And in the kingdom of grace, mercy triumphs over judgment. In the kingdom of grace, people are more valuable than their positions. In the kingdom of grace, forgiveness is the norm and reconciliation is the goal. In the kingdom of grace, our king has issued a new edict that declares, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbors and hate your enemy. 
But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. See, as God's children, we are meant to resemble our Father. Right? When you say yes to following Jesus, what you're saying yes to is, Jesus, make me become more like the heart of the Father, that my heart would reflect His heart. That's who we are becoming, the kind of people who not only know how to live in the kingdom of grace, but that we love living in the kingdom of grace. And so that's why God's question asked so long ago to Jonah is just as relevant to us today. Is it right that you are angry? As I was wrestling with this sermon, uh, the Holy Spirit brought to mind a story from many years ago that I experienced. Two um, uh, colleagues of mine, um, folks, two friends that I, cons- you know, uh, folks I considered friends, had a falling out that was messy. And part of what was so messy about it was there was very different perspectives about what had happened and who had hurt who and how and all those kinds of, um, all those kinds of things. And um, I wasn't really around or a part of the actual falling out, but I was around enough to sort of be aware of it and be familiar with it. And um, between the two friends, there was one who really worked through the hurt feelings and the anger and um, worked to sort of forgive and be open to reconciliation um, and was sort of you know, ready for that. But the other couldn't get past their anger, couldn't get past it. And, um, and the hurt done, and just, and just sort of locked on to that. Um, and I think part of that was because there was some fear tied into that anger about um, what had happened, about his ability to, to sort of have a livelihood and thrive beyond um, in the years to come. And so a, a self-righteousness sort of got into that person's heart. And this became really clear to me It was some four or five years after the falling out. So years have passed. And this one brother reaches out to me and says, hey, can we get together? Now, I was encouraged. I thought, oh, maybe this is a sign that this person is sort of ready to be open to reconciling. And, um, you know, is reaching out to sort of help me talk him through that and sort of help kind of uh, mediate the reconciliation. But when we got together, I found out, oh, no, that's not what this is about. It was about something totally unrelated, but I felt like I need to ask him about this, so I pressed in and I said, hey, have you thought about kind of working through what went down and, you know, being reconciled, working that through? And all of a sudden, that anger was right there again. No, no, I will never do that. Now, I I pressed him. I'm not normally like, you know, an in-your-face kind of guy, but I just felt like there's something significant happening right now. So I pressed him. I said, Now, consider that you both follow Jesus, so you know that we're both, you're both going to be, you know, in the kingdom for eternity, (laughs) right? That might be a little awkward. (laughs) If you, if you don't work that out now, you know, like, don't you want to kind of start working on that now, right? Um, Like, remember Jesus is, is here with us. We can, we can do this. And he was just like, no. As far as I'm concerned, I never want to see or speak to that person again. As I walked away from that interaction, my heart, my heart was heavy. This person's anger 
and sense of self-righteousness was causing him to declare, whether he recognized it or not, that the kingdom of grace was not where he wanted to live. If our Father loves mercy, he loves kindness, humility, forgiveness, and reconciliation, if those things are what make up the fabric of the kingdom of grace, then who are we becoming if we, choose, if we refuse to embrace those things? And where are we headed? I think this is the lesson of Jonah. It's a cautionary tale. It does not end well for Jonah. It's kind of depressing when you finish reading the story. God gives him an even another chance to respond to his mercy and to submit and say, God, you're God, I'm not. You show mercy to whoever you want to. Jonah refuses. He doesn't say another word to God, and that's how the story ends. It's a cautionary tale that I think is meant to encourage us to become the kind of people who cultivate a heart that loves mercy rather than judgment. That would, we would be people who love mercy more than judgment. I think that's why we come to church. I think that's why we need to be part of the body of Christ because, well, one, you want to learn about mercy, hang out with other people. Right? All, we all got rough edges. We're all going to do stuff to hurt one another. We get, there's plenty of opportunity in this room to learn how to extend mercy to one another. I think that's what the church is supposed to be about. And it's also the place where we remind each other that we live in a kingdom of grace. We encourage one another. We strengthen one another. Don't be formed and shaped by the patterns of this world. Let's not let the laws and edicts of this world shape who we are. Let's let the laws of Jesus, of love and grace, shape who we are. I want to end with a, a final story that feels a little vulnerable to share um, because I, I'm not trying to be political, but for the story to make sense, I have to go there just a little bit. Okay, so just hang in there with me. Um, so those letters that are up there, those different things that I showed, the one that I really struggle with, just me personally, is the NRA, okay, National Rifle Association. And that has to do with the fact that I didn't grow up around guns. It was never a part of our family culture. We, we didn't hunt any of those kinds of things. Um, and I think in recent years with all of the mass shootings, and particularly the ones at schools, that just hits so close to home. I've got teenage kids. and I grew up not far from Santa Clarita. And it just, it's, that's just been one after the other after the other. And in my heart, I just go, ah, oh, this feels so wrong got to change the law, right? And that, that, that's just me. That's how I engage with it. And from my perspective, I look out and I see on the other side of that line, I see this organization called the NRA that's sort of fighting against that. And I look, I don't understand that, and I want to judge that, and I want to get angry about that, okay? That's, that's me. Now, I share that with you. It'll make sense in a minute. Um, this last year has been one of the more difficult ones in my life. It's been a year characterized by grief and loss, um, full of challenges and um, kind of navigating through uncharted territory. And I have needed more than ever um, some, some sort of guides and helpers to come alongside and help encourage and strengthen me. And God knew that, and so God sent me my friend Dave. Dave was someone I've known kind of from a distance for many years, but because of the circumstances of this year, 
Dave, who loves Jesus and knows how to listen to the Holy Spirit, heard from God specifically um, to come alongside me and my wife, Annalisa, he and his wife, and come alongside us to just be a source of encouragement and strength. Folks, just pour into us. Just that kind of one way, like we have no agenda other than to bless you. Man, do we need folks like that in our life, especially in those stormy seasons. And they were that. Dave was amazing. Just, they'd come into town and he'd take us out to dinner, lavish, wherever you want to go, right? Lavish dinners, our treat, no arguing, right? This is just to bless you, right? And he'd listen and ask great questions and just speak wonderful words of encouragement that helped. I'd I'd walk away from that time, I'm like, oh God, thank you so much for Dave. What a gift. He's helping me journey, continue to journey with Jesus. Do you need to know some things about Dave? Dave grew up in a family that loves to hunt. And Dave has continued that tradition, and Dave owns some guns, and Dave is a card-carrying member of the NRA. The kingdom of this world would declare to both of us that you are enemies. There's a line, and you are on opposite sides of that line, And you should have nothing to do with each other. I'm so grateful that Dave and I are learning how to live in the kingdom of grace. Because in the kingdom of grace, being enemies, it's not really a problem. Because Jesus says, love your enemies, right? (laughs) Okay, (laughs) right? And the power of that love transforms enemies into brothers. God is so much bigger than just a few letters. His love and mercy are so much more powerful than those things. I refuse to live in a world that tells me I have to think otherwise. Instead, I want to live in the kingdom of grace. I want this church to be characterized by the kingdom of grace. I want us to be be people who can recognize where the lines are and are informed and know what the issues are, but at the end of the day, it's not about trying to convince one another, but it's about loving each other and recognizing that we have all received the abundant mercy of God and that our calling, first and foremost, is to extend that mercy and love and grace to others. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I just want to give you thanks for the ways that your grace is evident um, in this church, in the lives of folks that are here. And Lord, we acknowledge we're a work in progress. Would you help us to take in the lesson of Jonah? We sit with your question um, about the places we're tempted to feel self-righteous in our anger. And we say, Lord, have mercy. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on us. And help us to be the kind of people and the kind of church that extends that mercy to others. Jesus, we love you. We thank you that all of this is possible because of what you did on the cross, because of your heart and who you are. Draw us more deeply into your embrace, Lord. Amen.